Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 4, Part 2. The anointing was also Jesus' preparation for temptation. There were several purposes in his being led up of the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. As a man, he needed that which comes from the struggle. As a Savior, he was to be tested for his work, and as the head of the church, he was to be tempted in all points as his brethren are. As the Redeemer, he had to meet the great enemy of souls. Satan is the prince of this world. He was not the being to sit still and see his kingdom invaded, and his supremacy imperiled. This was to Satan the crisis of his existence. There was in his mind that unbelief which he holds to all the people of God. He believed in God and trembled, but he neither believed in Christ nor trembled at his presence. He certainly acted as if there was a possibility of success in the attempt. He saw in one human form and nature under actual human conditions, he had never failed to overcome such. In this spirit and confidence, Satan approaches the object of his hatred. He probably appeared at first in the person of a holy pilgrim or recluse, of which the wilderness had many living in solitude for the gain of purity or piety, or as a relief from the vain world about them. In the subsequent temptation, however, Satan disclosed his personality, seeing it useless to try to deceive Jesus. The time was opportune for the temptation. Jesus was in the wilderness. He was weakened by the fast of the forty days. He was exposed to the peculiar dangers of solitude. The temptation of Jesus was a repetition of that of Adam. It appealed to the threefold nature of man, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain glory of life. It was an epitome of all temptation from that day to this. The second Adam entered the struggle where the first Adam failed. The first Adam and the second Adam were representatives of mankind appointed of God. These respective trials were therefore worldwide in their scope. Satan begins with the lowest nature, the flesh. He always does with man. If he can tempt by the flesh, he need not try any higher form. Christ is hungry, and he tempts him by offer of food. A distinction must be discerned between the sin to which Jesus was tempted and the appeal by which he was attacked. If thou art the Son of God, command this stone that it become bread. It implied a doubt of his sonship, and this implied doubt of God, who had a little before said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. It was the same attack as that of Eden, a doubt of God. This was directed also against his claims as creator. It also questioned his claim as the Jehovah who fed Israel in the wilderness with manna. The test covered the whole past of the life of Christ as born of God, as creator, as Jehovah. The act proposed was right enough in itself. He was hungry. He must eat or starve. Why not take care of yourself? You have the power and the right. Here, take this stone. 
command it to be made bread. It is significant that in all his after miracles, Jesus never did turn stones into bread. The temptation by want is the most common today. Men struggle most fiercely for the means of living, and for this most wrongdoing is committed. It represents all demands of the flesh. The second temptation was an offer of universal dominion. Rome ruled the world, and Satan ruled Rome. To make this one or that one emperor was to him a small thing. He could have made Jesus so as well as any other. So this was his offer. Bow down and worship me, and all shall be thine. It will give you the opportunity you want. You can be thus a world ruler and reformer. It is so still. Get wealth, power, and so you can do good. The third temptation was more subtle still. Seeing the spiritual nature of Jesus, he proposes a spiritual temptation, the performance of a mighty deed of faith in God. Probably there was a purpose to further his messiahship. The Jews expected a messiah who would give them a sign. What better sign than this? Descend from the pinnacle of the temple. You need fear no evil, for he will give his angels charge over thee. And as you alight in the midst of the wandering throng, and they see your power, they will accept you at once as the Messiah. The attitude of Jesus in these three temptations was that of passive resistance. He simply declines the conflict as he declines the offers. It will not be thus Satan is to be defeated. He refuses to discuss with him the question of his relationship to God, the world, or the church, which the three temptations respectively question. With a few words of scripture, he replies to Satan, and he retires. Satan attacks Jesus hereafter through others, rather than directly. He speaks through Peter. He raises storms. He afflicts poor creatures and excites opposition among the people. And finally, inspires Judas and the Jews to destroy him. But he meets him again after a season. Jesus returns and enters his work. He has been tested in all the ways of trial and found true. Yet there is no restless looking for work. Jesus always waited his time. So now we see him with the power of the Spirit upon him, and a nation to bring back to God. And he is at a wedding feast, and by his miracle assisting to promote the enjoyment of the occasion. He seems to have returned from the baptism to his home, and we read of him with his family. But soon he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum, where he resides probably with one of his disciples. The family soon after follow him. But there are hints of trouble in his family relationship. His brethren do not believe in him. They all, mother as well, think him beside himself, and seek to divert him from his work, or at least to restrain him. He openly and formally renounces all family ties and declares, Who is my mother? and who are my brethren? And he stretched his hand toward his disciples, and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. This seems to have been the final separation from the home and ties of his youth. The breaking of home ties was no light effort for Jesus. We must not extinguish natural affection in our conception of him. He was complete man as well as God. He had all the tender feelings of a son and brother and friend and neighbor. But these came between him and his work, his duty to God and man. So he lays on the altar the dearest affection of the human heart 
and says farewell to the earthly mother whom he never after recognizes in that relationship for this he was no doubt censured this was hard to bear but was one of the burdens of the christ and is so still to some of his people he was as to his afterlife from this on wholly dependent jesus was poor he was literally penniless when he wanted a penny for an illustration he was obliged to borrow one he took what was given him he accepted invitations to meals or lodging but he was often hungry and is seen seeking for a few overlooked figs on a tree and raw grain from the fields to satisfy his hunger he slept often in the open air it was a poor living the creator got on his own earth jesus was wholly natural and unassuming he was neither in manner nor voice peculiar it was foretold of him he shall not strive nor cry aloud neither shall any one hear his voice in the streets it was neither outward looks nor sensational conduct which made jesus famous he did not seek notoriety but often avoided the crowd he did not run after people but waited for them to come to him but he made himself accessible he went everywhere he was footloose to go anywhere he mingled with the people and in the first year was not especially observed he was to those who saw him simply the carpenter of nazareth he went to marriages and feasts and through the marketplaces he was always on duty however he was christ as much at the wedding as on the cross he met all kinds of people when he became famous he was invited to the tables of the rich and he went he was the most approachable man who ever walked the earth women and the poor and the outcast accosted him and feared not to be repulsed he was at home and self-possessed in every circle he was regarded by fishermen as one of themselves and pharisees saw that he was equal to all their questionings he was scarcely ever alone indeed the hours of necessary devotion were hard to get people were attracted to him and this aside from his miracles he had no stiff ecclesiastical mannerisms he had no assumed dignity he was not afraid people would take advantage of him or impose upon him jesus was the son of man in a wholehearted devotion to every human being who needed or wanted his help he talked with an outcast woman and ate with publicans and sinners and shocked the proper and churchly people by his so doing that feature of the character of jesus which most drew people then and now to him was his compassion again and again it is said he had compassion on them that which drew out his compassion most was the spiritually deserted condition of the common people he described them as sheep not having a shepherd it was a very religious age there were hosts of religious teachers of all kinds and the most splendid services imaginable costing vast sums but the common people got little out of it all to them jesus went they responded by crowds the common people heard him gladly it is written the people wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth but the attitude of jesus was not all that of unvarying graciousness he was sometimes severe and on some occasions angry with hypocrisy he had no patience the most scathing words which ever came from prophet's lips he addressed to them ye serpents ye offspring of vipers 
how shall ye escape the judgment of hell he was especially grieved at the blindness of the people to their messiah and the unbelief of his disciples nothing seemed to give him such pleasure as to find one in whom was full faith he eulogizes it wherever he finds it he never hesitates to rebuke any even his loved disciples for a wrong spirit and calls peter satan as he tries to dissuade him from the cross in his cleansing of the temple there was evidently a departure from his usual calm bearing there is every indication of intense energy not unmingled with anger he drives out the herds of cattle and sheep lashing them with the whip of cords he orders in stern tones the removal of the cages of doves and indignantly hurls out of his way the stands of the money changers jesus had in coming a threefold mission to israel the church and the world the mission of jesus was first of all to israel he came as their messiah in his early ministry he sought israel exclusively i was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of israel was his own declaration as to his mission jesus was israel's prophet he came as the fulfillment of the priestly types of israel's worship he was emphatically the king of israel born of the royal line and in the royal city the words and work of jesus must be looked at in this exclusive light first of all if we would understand their meaning it was the jehovah coming to be recognized and received by his own to this end the whole life of jesus was lived on a prearranged and predicted plan all for the purpose of identification so too the teachings of jesus were all evidence of his claims the old testament was his great textbook he emphasized the law and upheld it he showed his authority over it by amending it when he saw necessary saying ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say unto you resist not him that is evil this is no disannulling but an addition to the law he claimed to be the lord of the sabbath he by all this treatment of the law showed he was the author of it all his miracles were also adapted to this end they were repetitions of those of the old testament the power over the sea was the same as that of moses the miracle of the loaves also was as the work of jehovah in the wilderness in the healing of the leper they could see the god of elisha jesus wondered that they could not see in him their jehovah it was this he meant when he said the works that i do they testify of me it was to jesus as israel's jehovah that his life teachings and words testified the force of this argument for the divinity of jesus not only to israel then but to all in every age will be seen by reviewing the messianic predictions they number hundreds and are remarkable for particularity and novelty of detail they refer to his coming the design of his mission his divinity his nation tribe and family the year he was to come the place of his birth the messenger who was to precede him his virgin mother the worship by the wise men the massacre of the babes at bethlehem his egyptian sojourn his grace and the gift of the holy spirit that he should preach and how and what he should preach that he should work miracles and cleanse the temple his triumphal entry into jerusalem that he should be hated persecuted betrayed by one of his own 
and sold for thirty pieces of silver his disciples to forsake him false witnesses to testify against him his silence under all this the smiting and plucking out of the hair of his face the scourging and his death by their unusual way of nailing to the cross the piercing of his hands and his side the offer of gall and vinegar the parting of his raiment and casting lots for his vesture the mocking his patience under all this praying for his enemies that not a bone should be broken that malefactors were to be associated with him in his death that he was to die in the midst of his life and be buried with the rich many of these are events which appear to be wholly incompatible with each other and with the circumstances of the time place character and work of the messiah and are such as would never occur to any one attempting to foist a series of predictions upon the world no such person would attempt to make the messiah appear in two such apparently incongruous positions as his state of humiliation and dignity indeed this was the point the israelites could not understand they therefore supposed there must be two messiahs one of humble state and the other coming in glory they could not see how he could be of royal descent have a forerunner be worshipped by the wise men ride in triumph into jerusalem be buried with the rich and at the same time be poor persecuted scourged mocked and crucified by the law of probabilities the simultaneous occurrence of these many and diverse details with all their possible combinations would not be one in a million million this would be the chance a putter forth of such a series of predictions would run of having his prophecies come to pass when it is remembered that these predictions were in existence hundreds of years before jesus came as is evidenced by the septuagint version of the scriptures and that jesus life corresponded thereto as acknowledged by all we see all the marks of a divine prediction and fulfilment which testify unanswerably that jesus was the predicted messiah of israel and god's son for the world yet jesus did not openly and publicly announce himself as the christ the partly concealing and partly revealing is seen in the titles applied by himself he is called son of david by others but he does not openly and formally so speak of himself his favorite title is the son of man this occurs frequently in the old testament especially in ezekiel to whom it is applied nearly one hundred times it is always applied with disparagement it is applied to christ but once in the old testament the jews evidently did not understand it as referring to the christ and so ask him who is the son of man it was a peculiar way of presenting himself we ask why he did not openly say i am the christ but he did not save to a few individuals and at his trial when asked plainly art thou the christ when he replied affirmatively this peculiar way of presenting himself was for the purpose of securing the true-hearted ones those who were looking for him or seeking truth or were willing to receive it when presented would recognize it and receive him all others would not or seeing him would hate him the more it is the divine way today and always the evidence for christianity is enough for those who wish to know the truth and are willing to do the right others cannot be convinced or will not act accordingly if convinced 
to such there are difficulties in the bible and christianity and above all in christians enough to turn them away israel rejected their jehovah and by that act lost the place as the favored people in the plan of god as the evangelizing nation of the earth until they turn again to christ it was no oversight or surprise to god his purposes and plans are always capable of adjustment to the various possible outcomes of any event indeed we have seen that from the beginning all was foreseen and provided for we ask with propriety what would have been the outcome if israel had accepted jesus as their messiah he would have undoubtedly accepted their allegiance and become their spiritual leader he would have reformed their ways in worship he would have sent missions to the scattered ten tribes and called them also to the truth all this would have brought upon him the animosity of the roman power who would in time have arrested him he would have been betrayed by some of his own and crucified of this israel as a nation would have been guiltless they would have escaped the long ages of trouble the end of the age of sin would have come sooner and the establishment of the kingdom greatly hastened the rejection of the messiah by israel was followed by their overthrow as a nation the destruction of their city and all that made up the old economy we must recognize the unity and continuity of the divine plan in the ages the overthrow of that age leaves a remnant as each of the previous ages did of this remnant jesus gathered the nucleus before his ascension the israelites age yielded a chosen company with which once more to sow the earth in the formation of the christian church jesus uses the order of the israelitish church it is one body as to all true believers who follow in the faith of abraham the great founder of the church the number of the apostles and the seventy are both those of the tribes and the eldership of israel so the sacraments of the israelitish church are perpetuated in the sacraments of the christian church circumcision and the passover still exist in baptism and the lord's supper we have in the lord's day the sabbath our churches are the synagogues little changed our church officers those of israel little modified we read and believe their scriptures their hope is ours to the institution of the church jesus gave the last year of his life the increasing opposition made intercourse with the public less frequent he was much alone with his disciples the followers of jesus appear to have gathered about him in concentric circles inside the number of those who believed in him there were the seventy the twelve were a closer circle within this circle there were the three who accompanied him on three and doubtless many other special occasions there was one out of those who was not content until he had leaned his head on jesus bosom we are reminded of david's similar surroundings out of the tribes judah was nearest his chosen band still nearer and among these the thirty mighty ones and out of these the three mightiest one of whom was the superior of all when jesus left there were not probably more than five hundred a band about as large as that which was faithful to david these jesus left as the beginning of the great structure of the church on the disciples gathered by jesus he so impressed himself that they went out repetitions of himself he wrote no books but what he said was recorded with perfect accuracy as seen by the gospels of four widely different persons his words and acts were imprinted upon their memories 
and by them recorded without bias or opinion there is in the gospels the absence of the usual laudatory expressions and general comment of biographers the gospels are perfect photographs of the life and words of jesus the special love of jesus for his own is seen in his intercourse with his disciples particularly the twelve to these he addressed words of great tenderness such as your father careth for you the very hairs of your head are all numbered fear not little flock it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom the teachings of jesus are the constitution of the church to which he expects all his people to conform again and again he urges them in such words as these why call ye me lord lord and do not the things which i say if ye love me keep my commandments his blessings are conditioned on obedience and the one who hears and does not is like a man who builds on the sand his last command to the world outside after making disciples and receiving them into the church was teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i commanded you the life and teachings of jesus furnish the picture of the possibilities of a regenerate life his own words were follow me to live after the teachings of christ is possible to every believer what the holy spirit did in jesus he will do in degree for any and every one who will follow jesus the branches are partakers with the vine of its life beauty fragrance and usefulness the teachings of jesus describe the character of those who attain to the kingdom they are the standard of citizenship by his words will all be judged the sermon on the mount is the spiritual exposition of the law it is designed for conviction and is the most searching message which can be addressed to those who believe in christ the gospels contain the model of christian work when jesus said follow me and i will make you fishers of men he gave the secret of success in preaching in working in life the great example is he who spake as never man spake the work of jesus was threefold he saved bodies souls and spirits his was a mission to sickness sorrow and sin he contemplated the whole man the church has in a measure followed his example the hospital the school and the church have sprung up together or rather the two former from the latter the mission of jesus was larger than israel or even the church it was world-wide and universal this is seen in himself jesus is not to be thought of as a jew although he was one he was the son of man he was the universal man he was in the highest sense a cosmopolitan a world man he is felt to be a brother to every man and in every age black and white rich and poor see in jesus their brother he rises above all rank and race he is an inhabitant of every land there is no other personage real or imaginary who is so universally received by men of every age race and rank all others are local and belong to their time and partake of their nation jesus belongs to mankind john is the chronicler of the gospel for the world the word world occurs in his writings more often than in all the other new testament books to john jesus is the savior of the world he is presented by him in great worldwide figures light water bread shepherd door and others understood everywhere 
john alone notes that the world was made by christ and that god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he was the lamb of god that taketh away the sin of the world that god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved the remark of the samaritan that christ was the savior of the world and christ's own remark that he gave life unto the world and gave his flesh for the life of the world that he said i am the light of the world that his earthly mission was not to judge the world but to save it it is john who notes the saying of jesus that the world may know that i love the father and as the father gave commandment even so i do and again it is john alone who writes of the convicting work of the spirit for the world and his petitions in his prayer that the world may believe and know that god had sent him in john's gospel the way of faith is clearly set forth the word believe also occurs more in his gospel than in all others he states distinctly the purpose of his writing many other signs therefore did jesus in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that ye may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing ye may have life in his name all this shows the purpose of the whole life and work of jesus as he has expressed it in his prayer that the world may believe that thou didst send me to the world jesus presented himself to be believed first as to himself and then as to his teachings and to be received jesus established himself as a witness competent and reliable the world has accepted him as such that such a man once lived is fully admitted by the world that the gospels are the record of his character and words is also fully admitted that he reached the summit of perfection of character is another accepted fact some well-known testimonies to these statements may be repeated here renan who denied the divinity of jesus as christians accept it writes as follows it is more inconceivable that a number of persons should agree to write such a history than that one should furnish the subject of it the jewish writers were incapable of the diction and strangers to the morality contained in the gospels the marks of its truth are so striking and inimitable that the inventor would be more astonishing than the hero whatever may be the manifold phenomena of the future jesus will not be surpassed all ages will proclaim that among the sons of men there is none born greater than jesus the unitarian theodore parker wrote shall we be told such a man never lived the whole story is a lie suppose that plato or newton never lived who did their works and thought their thoughts it takes a newton to forge a newton what man could have fabricated jesus none but a jesus jean paul richter thus writes of jesus the holiest among the mighty the mightiest among the holy lifted with his pierced hands empires off their hinges and turned the stream of centuries out of its channel and still governs the ages the infidel rousseau said how petty the book of the philosophers with all pomp compared to the gospels can it be that writings at once so sublime and so simple are the work of men is there anything in his character of the enthusiast or the ambitious sectary what sweetness what purity in his ways what touching grace in his teachings what a loftiness in his maxims what profound wisdom in his words what presence of mind what delicacy of aptness in his replies 
what an empire over his passions where is the man where is the sage who knows how to act to suffer to die without weakness and without display my friend men do not invent like this and the facts respecting socrates which no one doubts are not so well attested as those about jesus christ if the death of socrates be that of a sage the life and death of jesus are those of a god the testimony of all agrees with these no enemy has ever pointed to a flaw in the life character or words of jesus his challenge which of you convinceth me of sin has never been met the testimony of jesus is first of all as to himself in his life he did not rely upon the testimony of himself but on that of others his life was incomplete and they did not have as we have the full christ he pointed israel to the testimony of john the baptist the predictions of scripture fulfilled his miracles the voice of god heard there is also the testimony of his enemies and of such as pilate and the centurion who crucified him angels and devils and others it must be borne in mind that all this was to israel it was evidence for them particularly it was testimony to those who accepted the scriptures and god and the hereafter and a future life and the possibility of miracles and in fact all we believe up to christ the validity of all these depends on the new testament which must be accepted first all this then is testimony for the believer to confirm his faith to quote any of the above evidences to one who does not accept the truth of either the new or the old testament is useless it is reversing the scripture argument which makes christ himself the foundation of all faith the world is presented with the testimony of jesus that unimpeachable and accepted witness as to himself the claims of jesus as to himself are the most conspicuous part of his teachings they are utterly inconsistent with any theory except their truth since no one else can account for him his own account is our only resource he claimed to be the son of god and equal to god in such passages as these i and the father are one he that hath seen me hath seen the father the high priest said unto him i adjure thee by the living god that thou tellest whether thou be the christ the son of god jesus saith unto him thou hast said on this statement he was condemned to death jesus also claimed to have pre-existed and to be the final judge of the living and the dead jesus also ever declares himself as the sole way of salvation i am the way and the truth and the life no one cometh unto the father but by me he uses such figures as i am the door i am the bread of heaven i am the light of the world to express this truth he declared he that climbeth up some other way the same is a thief and a robber he claimed to be the only saviour for lost man there is no escape from one of three positions either jesus was all he claimed or he was mistaken or a willful deceiver the first is in accord with his universally admitted character the others are utterly inconsistent therewith it is inconceivable that one so holy and wise could be deceived as to himself or would deceive others jesus must be accepted on his own claims as the son of god any other conclusion would violate all the rules of evidence 
in view of the spotless character and matchless wisdom of jesus there is no escape from the conclusion truly this was the son of god the testimony of jesus to the scriptures has already been mentioned he declared of the law and the prophets i came not to destroy but to fulfill contrast this statement with the word and utterances of destructive criticism the same authority he gave his disciples for the new testament saying he that heareth you heareth me and he that rejecteth you rejecteth me and he that rejecteth me rejecteth him that sent me so that the greatest proof of the bible is the testimony of jesus the surest as well as the briefest argument that the bible is authentic true and inspired is jesus said so jesus came as a witness for god he came to reveal god to man he revealed god by his teachings and by himself his life and acts in his teachings he revealed god in nature in man and chief of all in scripture the israelite of that day was a neglecter of the great natural volume of divine wisdom jesus opened and expounded it and brought therefrom lessons of god's love and wisdom as in the well-known passages behold the birds of the heaven consider the lilies of the field he called attention to the eminence of god in nature in the words not a sparrow falleth to the ground without your father he declares the plan of god in nature and in providence in these words the earth beareth fruit of herself first the blade then the ear then the full corn in the ear the scoffers who came asking a sign he points to the sky and bids them learn therefrom a very large part of the teachings of jesus are illustrated by or wholly taken from the natural works of god jesus also revealed god in man he saw in the original nature of man and in every natural relationship the work of god and the impress of god himself he saw god in the good samaritan and the merciful creditor and the prodigal's father his favorite name for god father was taken from a human relationship he appealed to their own natural parental instincts as showing the feelings of god if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your heavenly father give the holy spirit to them that ask him the parables of jesus were taken wholly from the books of nature and humanity but the great revelation which jesus brought to the earth was that which he taught of god from the scriptures which were to him a revelation of the will of god and as such he taught them but he brought out what had been long hidden and almost lost the spiritual sense and the real desire of god in the law the scope of the sermon on the mount was to bring out the spirituality of the law this is the sense of the words i desire mercy and not sacrifice their whole idea of god had been perverted the jehovah they saw was a being of rites and ceremonies who cared for a special class and like themselves despised or ignored all others the law they thought was a machine of value in itself and for itself he showed them its meaning in the words the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath in all this jesus sought to reveal god in the scriptures the chief revelation of god which jesus brought to man was that which he exhibited in his own nature person and life jesus was himself a revelation of god he was god manifest in the flesh 
what jesus was god is all the great compassion and tenderness of jesus is but a reflection of the nature of god jesus shows fully what nature and man reveals partially in god the evils of nature and the imperfection of a human life conceal the love of god looking at life from some standpoints it seems all sadness and nature all wrath this picture is relieved by considering jesus as he felt and acted toward man so god feels and so would be his dealings if man would receive his son as their saviour and king to see the love of god for man jesus must be known and studied he fully exhibits god's holiness also jesus was god's idea of perfection jesus was god's ideal man he was not simply sinless that is not righteousness still less holiness jesus was the embodiment of god's idea of perfection nor was the justice of god lacking in jesus although he came as he expressly said not to judge the world nor to condemn it but there was a class to which jesus showed no forbearance the hypocrite was the object of his unmeasured severity jesus seemed willing to stand anything but self-righteousness and hypocrisy to those who had the light and refused to receive it he declared the certain consequences he upbraided the cities where his mighty works were done because they believed not in him all his exposition of the law in the sermon on the mount was a vindication of the righteousness of god the great hereafter is by jesus set forth in all its grandeur and certainty in the parable of the rich man and lazarus he lifts the curtain and shows us the course of two souls passing out into eternity and their respective fates jesus knew the future and declared it the great fact of hell is distinctively taught by jesus the passage above is only one of many he warns against it in these words and be not afraid of them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell the great heart motive of jesus and the greatest lesson he came to teach not only this world but all worlds and all ages is seen in the passages as the following which were continually upon his lips i am come down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me as the father gave me commandment even so i do my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work far above all other motives however great was this supreme aim it was his heart's desire his feeling for man comes in order of strength after this and because of it in exhibiting his loyalty to god jesus supplied the world's greatest need a recent writer has said the one great aim of all philosophy ancient and modern has been to discover in the nature of things a rational sanction for human conduct this great question jesus came to answer he came to show man the standard of right the great motive of life he showed it by his words and above all by his life to do the will of god was the mainspring of the life and work of jesus jesus taught that there is but one self-existing god he himself although equal in nature never assumes any other than a subordinate place in jesus we see the most profound reverence for god and the most implicit obedience to him faith in him and dependence upon him none can surpass in all these him who is the express image of his person 
you will have nothing to attract the gaze of man from god the father all he does he attributes to him it has been repeatedly shown that the whole purpose of the creation of man and all this long procession of ages and all the strange story of sin and sorrow is to demonstrate once for all that there must be but one will and that will god's as the law of all existence and that anything short of this is sin and as the certain consequence suffering and death so jesus came to set this perfect example of an absolutely perfect obedience and wholehearted yielding up to god and living for him first of all the title which expressed this relationship to god was son in this title and relationship we see the attitude of jesus it is in this relationship there appears all that class of passages which speak of the subordination of jesus to the father these will not be understood unless the great purpose and attitude of jesus is kept in mind in his incarnation to exhibit a perfectly devoted and obedient heart and life it is as son he says my father is greater than i the son can do nothing of himself nor is this assumed for the life on earth only in his eternal state he is seen yielding up all to the father and dutifully subjecting himself to god this should be the feeling of every child of god it is the greatest possible to man in it is all holiness and happiness to seek the will of god is that singleness of eye which fills the whole heart and life with light it brings the soul into perfect accord with the one source of all good it was this which jesus had and which brought him the word of god saying thou art my beloved son in thee i am well pleased end of chapter four part two